0: I'm actually going to read, uh, starting in verse 1, just for context, I'll read to verse 10. So let's read together, starting in verse 1. We'll go to verse 10. Now, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Join me in prayer before we sit. Lord, it is our desire to hear your voice today. Even in a sermon, we could certainly hear the voice of a man. And Lord, I don't want that for us today. I pray that you would help us all to weed through the words going through the air today and to receive that word that the Spirit has to give to us each. Let all my words fall to the ground. Let only your words remain so that we would be changed as we behold you in your word today. My prayer for this church is that we be built up in your word. That we see Christ in your word. That's why we gather. That's why we're here. We need to see you. We need to hear you. So slow our hearts down, but not to sleepy apathy. But perk our ears up to hear what you have to say. We pray this that you do this. Great work, Lord, and you promise that you will do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to your power in us. So please do that, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for being seated. Jim, did you need this back? All right. Well, I have frequently shared before with you that I am... Uh, someone who enjoys watching movies, film—I probably start most of my sermons with that phrase in some way. Uh, and one, th- the one reason why uh, I, that is, is I like to—I like to look for threads in a certain movie or a film that depict our humanness, uh, that 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 show show us. Uh, mankind's search for, for, for purpose and, and for meaning. I, l- I like to look for the little threads of the gospel that show our bare humanity and our need for redemption and our need to be, to be saved. So I, I look for that when I watch a movie. Well, last week, Michelle and I, my wife, uh, watched a, a little-known film probably uh, about American author J.D. Salinger called Rebel in the Rye. Uh, When you're in high school, you probably read one of his most famous works called The Catcher in the Rye. And I appreciated how the film uh, captured uh, Salinger's personality. It captured his charm really well, but it also captured his perhaps self-absorbed tendencies. In the era that he lived, uh, he was called to serve in World War II, so he went overseas and he served five campaigns uh, with the American army, and uh, when he came home, he came home with some very severe, what we would now call today, PTSD. So in his search for peace, he, he tried all sorts of spiritual uh, pathways. He, he tried Zen Buddhism, for example. In the process, he, he was married and was divorced a couple of times, but in, as he grew older, he grew increasingly withdrawn from society. Uh, he moved to rural New Hampshire, and he became more reclusive uh, and continued to try a host of different spiritual remedies, remedies like uh, clairvoyance or even an early form of Scientology. And uh, aside from a few instances, he was rarely seen by the outside world. Uh, he lived a long time but uh, relatively by himself in 2010 he died uh, at the age of 91 age of 91 well loved ones ecclesiastes 3 and verse 10 says that god has planted eternity in the human heart jd salinger is just one example of mankind's search for meaning the life that ex- exists and will exist beyond what we can see with our eyes and our relationships and our possessions and the things that we look to for security. God has so wired humankind to search for answers to very profound and deep questions. Questions like, who is God? Can I know God? Why am I here? What comes after this life? How can I find Lasting peace. So we come again to the story of Jonah. And here in our story, we return to this group of sailors who themselves are searching for peace. Now, of course, peace for them consists of relief and rescue from this life-threatening storm. But the problem is, is that this storm has been caused by a true servant of God. Jonah is a rebellious prophet who has forgotten who he is. He is not fulfilling God's purposes for him. So as a result of his disobedience and his rebellion, he harms his neighbors instead of helping his neighbors. We saw that last week. But in a great twist of irony... We're going to see today that it will actually be Jonah's neighbors who help him. As the storm continues to rage, his desperate shipmates, moved by the hand of God's sovereignty, will force Jonah to confess to them who he is and whose he is. But only then will Jonah be humbled low enough To begin his journey back to the pathway of obedience to God. So, friends, as we get into this study together, I want to ask the the question: how how about us? Are, are, Are we looking for peace from a storm in our lives today? Maybe we're asking some of those big questions, right? The questions that God has put in man's heart. Are you looking for meaning? Are you looking for purpose? Especially as you consider the storm in your life that doesn't seem to square with what you thought was your purpose. It doesn't make sense. And so you're doing a lot more question asking than you are speaking. You're asking God why. You're asking God when. You're asking God where. If this is any of us today, friends... This passage shows us that the storms that are in our lives can actually be a severe mercy of God, and that in those storms, God intends to bring us face-to-face with himself so that we might learn who we are and whose we are. Don't be afraid of the storm. This storm could be sent by God. The title of this sermon, if you're taking notes, is God is Revealed in the Storm. God Revealed in the Storm. I'm going to divide this text into three headings, just three words, and like any really good preacher worth his salt, I'll use alliteration. Three words that all start with R. Don't know why, but it just worked out best this way. The first is remedy, the second is revelation, and the third is reverence. Let's study the first together, remedy. So let's get back into the story. Imagine the storm. Imagine the picture, the scene. The storm is raging all around this ancient ship. The storm threatens this ship, threatens to sink it. And the sailors that are aboard this this ship have fallen on their faces, and each of them are calling out to his God for mercy. The captain of the ship manages to get down to the bottom of the ship and shake Jonah awake from the deep sleep that he was in so that he might also plead with his God, call on his God for mercy. Now, let's just remember who these men are on this ship. These men, are these sailors, are a, a group of ancient polytheistic people. In other words, they're not Israelites. They did not have the advantage of knowing Yahweh, the true God. But nonetheless, they're very religious men, we can see. They serve a variety of gods, each of whom is responsible for overseeing different aspects of their lives. In the ancient world, it was very common for people to equate sudden difficult circumstances with the anger of one's own personal gods. And so clearly their personal gods are proving to be no match for whatever powerful deity is causing this storm. So as most people do when conflict arises suddenly, maybe this is you today, Jonah's shipmates begin asking questions, begin searching for answers. And they hope that by learning what God is responsible for this storm, that they can appease him, maybe by offering up some sort of sacrifice to pacify his wrath and find peace. They want a remedy. A remedy. And since their local gods have obviously failed them, reminds me of uh, the Athenians in Paul's day, they're seeking after the unknown God. And the true God, meanwhile, is the one responsible for all that's going on. They just don't know it yet. Now, what's obvious is what's not obvious, and that's the man Jonah. Jonah has not said a word yet. He should be the one pointing them, but he is silent. So the sailors turn to a practice that was fairly common in ancient Israel, but also in other cultures as well, the casting of lots. And the purpose of casting lots was to seek an answer, an answer from God or whatever deity, uh, an answer about which they had no immediate revelation. Scholars tell us there were a number of ways this was probably done, but generally it involved taking some stones or maybe some small objects marked with an individual's name, and the stones were placed in a container, and they would shake the container until one of the stones fell out. Now, we who know the Bible know that Proverbs 16.33 says, the lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is of the Lord. And so God used this seemingly random practice, maybe divination, to reveal his sovereign purposes. And he does so in this particular case. The Lord shows these men that this man Jonah, whoever he is, is the reason for the storm. Whoever this man is and whoever his God is, Jonah's God must be angry at him for something. He must have done something pretty darn bad. He must have committed some pretty grievous sin. Again, people in those days really quickly equated negative circumstances with some sin. Joan is the reason for the storm. Joan is the reason why the sailors are in turmoil. But I think there's something that's important for us to see here at this point. The casting of lots by Jonah's neighbors actually reveals something about the unbelieving world that is very telling. Notice that each man is willing to admit that bad things happen to sinners, but notice that none of them are willing to admit that they themselves are the sinners. In other words, they want a remedy for the effect of sin. But they don't want to deal with the sin itself. Why? Because that would mean having to stop looking around and start looking within. That would mean to having to look inside and see some things that maybe are not very flattering. So they say, let's cast lots. Let's find out who's responsible for this storm. But they do, they do this because none of them can identify any wrongdoing in themselves none of them could see that they could possibly be the cause. Richard Phillips, the commentator, summarizes their attitude well when he says people are willing to admit that they have not always done right and have sometimes done wrong, but nothing that might deserve God's special wrath, they nonetheless conclude. People are willing to admit they have faults and even that they commit sins. But they will not admit that they justly come under the condemnation and wrath of God. This is why when tragedy strikes, people are often angry with God rather than fearful of God. Friends, look at our world. Look look around us at our world. Look at our culture. We live in a culture that is completely self-absorbed. Friends, we are all narcissists to differing degrees. If if you don't believe me, just turn on the radio, listen to the first song that pops up, and count how many times the artist sings I, me, or my. Follow them on Instagram and watch how many close-ups you can see of them, how many dramatic poses that you'll find. No, no public persona, no public figure wants to give the impression that they aren't amazing and perfect in every single way. And even when weakness is admitted, it's done in this sort of self aggrandizing, falsely humble type way. But, friends, it isn't just celebrities, easy to criticize as they are, it's us. None of us, none of us, when pressed, want to give the impression that we have faults. And most certainly, most certainly, we don't want to admit how. In our natural state, how really ugly we are on the inside. We don't want to confess that we're sinners. That we are rebels against God. So, when something bad happens in our lives, what's our first response? Our first response is to look for someone else to blame. Let, let, blame our, sp- our boss, blame our, our spouse, blame our neighbor, blame the government, blame God, but not ourselves. Friends, the Bible says that the reason why there is evil in the world and and disaster and brokenness is because we are in the world. We're not on the outside looking in. We're in. Evil and disaster is in this world. This this ship of life is under a life-threatening storm because we are on it. The Bible says this. Death has spread to all men because of sin, Romans 5.12. Every bad thing in this world, from from violence to disease to, to natural disasters to accidents, can be traced to human revolt against the goodness and holiness of God. And we are all culpable. We are all guilty. Now, none of us are as bad as we possibly could be because of the restraining grace of God. But in our hearts... Apart from an act of grace, every one of us hates the rule and the authority of the Lord over the universe. If Jonah was a rebellious prophet, he is a perfect representative example of every one of us and everyone on that ship. Everyone on that ship is looking for everyone else Who's at fault? They want an outside remedy to an outside problem, but they're blind to the fact that each of them are justly under the wrath of God because each of them have turned away from him in their hearts. Loved ones, are we, are we prone to look for the cause of our problems in the actions of other people or entities. Are we quick to blame others, yet failing to see the ways that we are to blame? I've mentioned this before, but it's such a perfect illustration of this. Remember in Mark 2, Where those boys brought the paralytic and lowered him down into where Jesus was and said, would you please heal our friend? And what did Jesus say? You're healed, get up, right? Nope. He said, my son, take heart, your sins are forgiven you. And everyone was offended by that. How can this man forgive sins? What was Jesus saying? Jesus was saying, your legs aren't the problem. Your physical deformity and weakness is not the problem. Your sinful deformity is the problem. And he saw his faith and he forgave his sins. If we don't start thinking like that, we're going to go through this life smug and self-satisfied. Friends, if there's grumbling in our hearts all the time, and I'm just saying because I struggle with that, it's probably because I'm doing more looking around at others than I am at myself. And in the off chance that I do look at myself and I do identify the sin inside my heart, so often I see it as an inconvenience and not as an offense against a holy God. And so sins that are inconveniences can be dealt with very easily by us. We can just get up and go do something else. We can just busy ourselves with some other form of recreation because it's just an inconvenience. I don't want to be inconvenienced by that anymore. But sins that are against a holy God can only be dealt with by the sacrifice that He has offered. It's by looking to and receiving the sacrifice that He has offered in His Son. Grace will never be amazing. The love of Christ for us in the gospel will be cliched and repetitive and ineffective to change us unless we have this revelation of this remedy. The remedy that we need is not found in the transformation of others, but in the transformation of self. Self, the God that we've exalted to the throne of the universe. But for this to happen, we need to come face-to-face with the true God. And so that's what happens when Jonah's neighbors are introduced to God in this second word, revelation. Revelation. The sailors shake a container until a stone falls out. And on that stone is written the name Jonah, Jonah. Jonah's sin finds him out. So so anxious for some relief, some calming of the storm, they hit Jonah with a barrage of questions in verse 8. You see, in verse 7, they were looking for the human culprit behind the storm. But here in verse 8, notice the subtle shift. They're looking for the God who is behind this storm. So they repeat, tell us on whose account, Jonah, this evil has come upon us. Then what what do you do? What's your occupation? What's your work? What's your mission? Where are you from? Who are your people? Guys, these are identity questions. They want Jonah to tell them some things about him because when they learn who he is, maybe they'll be able to figure out who the God is that he's offended that's causing this storm. Again, these are religious men who have worshipped a variety of gods. They had gods associated with everything in their lives, their trade, their family, their city. These are some pretty lousy gods. They're powerless against Jonah's god, So they figured if we could learn about Jonah's god, then maybe we could approach him in some way and appease him in some way. And so finally, nine verses into the narrative, Jonah speaks. God had sent his word to Jonah to go and call out against the Ninevites, opening his mouth as an agent of God's revelation to the world, but he ran, and with devastating consequence. Now, here he is on this Tarshish-bound, storm-tossed ship, and he's doing what he should have been doing in Nineveh. He's evangelizing. He's proclaiming who God is to the nations. And look how he does it. He answers the last question first. Who are your people? He says, I am a Hebrew. A bear. This was the response that you'd give if you were talking to someone from another nation at that time. A bear is a word that literally means from the other side. Jonah is saying to his pagan neighbors, I belong to Abraham's family, the immigrant who long ago came from the other side of the Euphrates River into the land of Canaan to dwell. Abraham was the man whom Yahweh God revealed himself, promising to make into a great nation, promising to bless all nations through him. But then notice, instead of answering their other questions, he gets right to the point. I fear the Lord. Yahweh, see the L-O-R-D in caps? That's the divine name in the Hebrew language. The God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Now, that's, that's an amazing statement. Jonah is saying, listen, Jonah is saying that his God is the true God. Jonah's saying that his God is the one who has jurisdiction over everything that exists because he created everything. And the mention of the sea before the dry land, that's not the typical formula, by the way. Usually when the Yahweh God is introduced, he's shown as the God who made the dry land and the sea. Jonah reverses it, leaving no question that Yahweh is behind the storm. You see, loved ones, the true God is not confined to dry land or to sea. He's not confined to boats or cities or nations. He's present in dry land. He's present in the ocean. He's present in the scorching desert, as we'll see in a few weeks, and he's present in violent ocean tempests. He isn't confined to a certain environment, nor is he limited by any human or natural force. The psalmist said, whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth, in the seas, and all the deeps, Psalm 135 6. Again, many years later, I'm reminded of the Apostle Paul, who had visited the city of Athens in Acts 17. And he stood up in the midst of the Athenians and preached a similar message to those religious polytheists in Athens. Let me read that, a portion of that story for you. Acts 17 22, it says, yet he is actually not far from each one of us. Jonah was forced to confess that truth to his neighbors. You know, sometimes you hear people personify the universe. Oh, the universe must be happy today. The universe threw me some good luck today. There's no further unbiblical language that could be spoken. Jonah's God is the creator of the universe. Everything in it draws life from him alone. But what's almost unbelievable is that the all-powerful, everywhere-present creator God, listen, is also a personal God. And he so arranged the peoples of the earth, giving them boundaries and dwelling places. Why? So that he could reveal himself to people who are far from him. This one who is greater and higher and infinite and majesty and beauty and glory and holiness stoops down from his throne to make his name known to rebel prophets and spiritual pagans whose hearts are far from him. Yet he doesn't stay far from any one of them. course, as salvation history unfolds, as the opening verses of Hebrews says, though long ago God revealed himself through his specially chosen prophets, this same God in these last days has spoken to us by his son, Hebrews 1, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world and through whom he made purification for sins. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Many years after Jonah, God indeed stepped down from his throne in heaven. But he did so in the person of his his son. He came so that natural man would not have to try to figure out how to appease God, who really is offended by our sin, but instead offered up his own body and blood as the only acceptable sacrifice to pacify his wrath. What is man That God is mindful of him. Who are we? Self absorbed, God hating us who strays in our hearts, always looking for peace from a a storm, always looking for a remedy in the false gods and idols that we've created that are never satisfied. What's your idol today? What's your false God? We all have them, we just don't like to talk about them. Is it the idol of financial security? Are you sacrificing your time and your family on the altar of hard work because you fear his wrath, which is financial instability? Friends, this God is never satisfied. Is your God the idol of comfort? Are you sacrificing relationships by withdrawing from people? Your physical health by overeating? Your ability to think, to use your brain by constant screen scrolling because you fear the wrath of the God of comfort, which is discomfort? But this God is never satisfied. What about the idol of relationship? On this altar, we offer up our affections for Christ, and we burn them up because we're desperate to find someone else because we fear being alone. But this God is never satisfied. Because let me tell you something, after 18 years of marriage, a spouse can be an idol. An idol that never really quite satisfies the longings of the human soul. And I love my wife more than anyone. Is your idol the idol of busyness? Sacrificing on the altar your care and love for others. Sacrificing thoughtful reflection and prayer before the Lord on the altar of movement. Always reaching for a phone. Always looking for something to do. Always wanting to travel. Always waiting for the weekend. Because you fear the wrath of this God, which is purposelessness. What's our idols today? You know, we may find ourselves in a storm today. We might find ourselves in this storm. But friends, this storm that we're in, maybe, 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 is so that God can show us how weak our gods are. Maybe the storm is our salvation. Maybe the storm of health problems and loss and betrayal and discontentment and anxiety over the future has been sent by God so that to teach us to endure the storm, Because in the storm, he intends to bring us to the end of ourselves where we find the limitless God of the universe. I don't know who this is for. Maybe it's for me. Stop trying to get out of the storm. Stop trying to bring the boat to safe haven and find calm. You can't. The God who made the storm is behind it. Only by bowing in reverence to him will we find peace with him. So the sailors search for the remedy from the storm. They find the true God through Jonah's revelation of him. And this is their response. Let number three, reverence. Once Jonah affirms who he is and whose he is, the men literally in the Hebrew feared with a very great fear. Evidently, Jonah filled him out a little bit more about his story because he told him that he was trying to flee from the presence of God. And so as this storm rages on and the waves crash and the thunder shakes them in their great fear, not now from the storm, but in their fear of Jonah's God, they rightly rebuke him. And they say, what have you done? This is a very low point for Jonah. This this, this does not make this prophet look very good. His life has not matched his his message. Friends, he's, he's proven that he doesn't really fear the Lord as he claims. These men are shocked that Jonah is living in defiance of the true God and putting them in danger in the process. And friends, what a shame it is. What a shame it is when the church contradicts the gospel message by our lifestyle I remember a time years ago in a different town we had a neighbor and we had a friend who was a, a coach of our son's team and he was a pastor every so often he'd get angry and flip out and yell at the umpires and I was talking to my unbelieving neighbor one day who knew him as well and He said, yeah, can you believe he's a pastor? And I thought, oh my. Oh my. His life contradicted his message. And what a warning that is for me. And what a warning that is for us. Jonah's fear is put in stark contrast with the immense fear of these sailors. These sailors are the more righteous in this story. Loved ones, Jonah may be a true worshiper of God, but he has a few idols of his own. His ethnicity, his position as a prophet of God was something that gave him value and significance more than God himself. He loved his position more than he loved God. And because of this, he has no real fear, no real reverence of God, and no real love for the people that God sends him to. What about us? Where's our value? Where's our significance? Where does it come from today? Are we fleeing to other idols to save face? Or are we turning to the true God in repentance and faith? In closing, I'm reminded of uh, the conversion story of missionary Adniram Judson. Adoniram Judson Judson was one of the first overseas missionaries to come out of America. He had a a very long and successful but very difficult ministry in Burma, which is modern-day Myanmar. Judson was raised in a a Christian home. In his teens, he attended uh, Brown University in Providence, Rhode Island, where he befriended another young man by the name of Jacob Eames. Eames was a philosopher who, regularly mocked the God of the Bible. And Judson was soon swayed by his views. By his 20th birthday in 1808, Judson announced to his parents that he had abandoned the Christian faith and he went off to New York to try to make it as a playwright. But this pursuit left him disillusioned, so Judson decided a change of pace might be good, so he traveled west. One night he came to a small country inn and he spent the night there. And that night, there was only one room available, but it was a room next to a man who happened to be dying. And all night, Judson heard his groans and he could not sleep because of this man's groans until one day, really, really late in the wee hours of the morning, the groaning finally stopped and Judson fell asleep. The next morning, the groggy missionary went down, well, future missionary, went downstairs to find out what happened to the man, and the clerk said, he's dead. So Judson casually asked, really, do do you know who he was? He said, oh yes, Uh, he was a young man from that college in Providence. His name was Eames, Jacob Eames. Judson froze and time stopped, and he stumbled back to his room, in a daze, and he thought, lost. In death, Jacob Eames was lost, utterly, irrevocably lost, lost to his friends, to the world, to the future, lost as a puff of smoke is lost in the infinity of air. If Eames' own views were true, neither his life nor his death had any meaning. But suppose Eames had been mistaken. Suppose the scriptures were literally true and a personal God, real. For that hell should open in that country inn and snatch Jacob Eames, my dearest friend and guide, from the next bed. This could not, simply could not be Coincidence. And that word lost rolled over his mind like waves. Because not long after, Judson would bow to the Savior. And he would come not only to believe the gospel, but to pour out the rest of his life suffering extraordinary things in his name. I'm out of time. Friends, is there an an altar in your life that you're sacrificing time and family and care for others and affection for Jesus on? Is there an altar that's reserved for your living body, the only acceptable sacrifice, the only one thing that we could offer up to God, the only thing that stands in the way of receiving the grace and knowledge of Jesus? Friends, we need to stand up and bow down before God and confess to God and repent before God and ask him to receive us on the basis of that sacrifice that was offered for us, not one we can offer up ourselves. What's your altar? What's your storm today? What's God using to get to you? God will get his man. God will get his woman What if our place is the place that God is allowing our idolatry to creep up, to rear its ugly head? What if the boundary God has reserved for you right now is the storm to bring you to the end of yourself so that you might come face to face with God?